Because Golgotha was not only the site of Jesus's crucifixion, but was also the destination of his journey as he's led out of the fortress of Antonia, last Sunday, we began a discussion concerning the location of Golgotha for two fundamental reasons. First, at Calvary 316, we just wanna be scriptural in our understanding of things. In a lot of ways, we wanna try to set aside tradition, set aside preconceived ideas, and we want scripture to just reinforce, we want scripture to, to, to detail, to document, to point us to the right directions in all of our conclusions, also concerning the location of Golgotha, mainly because there's a lot of misunderstanding. The two common opinions concerning Golgotha is you have the Roman Catholic Church that proposes that Golgotha is actually underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. You also have Protestants that point to an unofficial location, a rock face north and west of the city that looks like a skull, Golgotha meaning the place of the skull. And yet, last week we established the idea that the most biblically consistent location for Golgotha is not the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it's not this rock face but rather the best location according to the five biblical requirements is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives to begin with was located outside of the city. That was the first requirement. Secondly, it was situated along a popular highway that pilgrims would use when traveling from the Jordan up to Jerusalem. Located at the base, the southern base of the Mount of Olives, we find thirdly, there was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. We know when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, what did she discover? She discovered the resurrected Jesus of whom she thought was a gardener. We also know, fourthly, that close to Golgotha was a graveyard that was designated for the nobility of Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, the Mount of Olives at the base, we find uh, tombs that date back beyond the first century for the nobility of Jerusalem. And fifthly, and most importantly, according to temple construction, Jewish tradition, as well as geographical topography, the only place that you would be able to peer from into the temple to see the veil torn in two, which we know, according to Mark, was a requirement for the location of Golgotha, that is impossible from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, as well as this rock face, because they're north and west, and the temple faced east. The only location that you could be standing there and peer into the temple is the Mount of Olives. And so we examined this, documented it, detailed it, because we just want to be biblically consistent in our conclusions. I have problems with the location, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I have problems with the location of the rock face. I think they're both wrong, not to mention the Via Della Rosa, which is the pathway that led from the fortress of Antonio to the said place of Golgotha. It's actually a myth that was, it actually came to being in the 18th century. And so there's lots of problems. We want to be biblical in our conclusions. Secondly, the second reason we're spending time on this is that Golgotha's location, being on the Mount of Olives, it provides deeper spiritual meaning behind Jesus' journey, his crucifixion, and the experience of Christ on the cross. First, if the Mount of Olives is the location of Golgotha, or if Golgotha was on 
located on the Mount of Olives. The journey to the cross, it deepens in its geographical significance. Imagine the picture. We discussed it last week. The perfect Lamb of God, Jesus, being led north out of the fortress of Antonio through the Sheep Gate, east across the Kidron Valley, which at the time is filled with the blood of what? The sacrifices flowing out of the temple into the valley. Goes out the Sheep Gate, across the blood of the sacrifices, and then up the summit of the Mount of Olives, where as he's hanging on the cross, he would be able to do what? He'd be able to look over the city. He'd be able to gaze into the temple as he atones for the sins of the world. Secondly, If the Mount of Olives is the location of Golgotha, typologically, the crucifixion of Jesus becomes more scripturally consistent. Though the Mosaic law commanded that all the activities of the priests, the Levites, occur within the temple precincts, the procedures concerning two things were commanded to happen outside of the temple, east on the Mount of Olives. Both the procedures concerning the scapegoat Leviticus 16, if you want to read about it on your own, and the sacrifice of the red heifer, you can read about it in Numbers 19, both occur on the Mount of Olives, and as you study both sacrifices, the particulars of each, you will discover that their ultimate fulfillment, that the sacrifice of both the red heifer, the procedures concerning the scapegoat, both occurring on the Mount of Olives, find their fulfillment. They are a picture of Jesus And what? The atoning work he would do on where? On Golgotha, the cross. To me, typologically, the crucifixion of Jesus, if it's on the Mount of Olives, it becomes more scripturally consistent with what we know. But thirdly, if the Mount of Olives is the location of Golgotha, the experience of Jesus on the cross, it becomes deeply symbolic. Of the 15 times in Scripture that you read of the Mount of Olives, you will find that in each instance, the Mount of Olives is always in connection with one word, separation, which adds, in my estimation, a further dynamic to this location being the execution site of Jesus. You know, Jesus himself maintained this symbolism every single time he visited the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives being about separation. When he went to the garden after the Passover with the disciples, the 11 Judas had left, what did he do? He engaged in separation. First, he separated Peter, James, and John from the rest. And they went further into the garden. And then what did he do? He separated from Peter, James, and John further. Jesus separated himself. Before his coming arrest and execution, he separated to prepare and prayer for what would come. And then upon his ascension, from where? Interestingly enough, the Mount of Olives. Jesus further separated himself bodily, physically from the church. Why? so that he could send the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts. And when he returns, where? The Mount of Olives? Reoccurring theme, yes. When he returns to the Mount of Olives to establish his kingdom, what will he do? Two things immediately happen. The mountain splits. It separates. And what happens from there? Jesus, he separates the elect from the wicked whom he'll destroy and judge. 
Let me give you an Old Testament example that further reinforces the symbolism and, in my mind, deepens what's happening on the cross. The prophet Ezekiel, it talks about something very interesting that happened, something he saw. Ezekiel, we're told, sees the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God that rested in the Holy of Holies there in the temple. He sees the glory of the Lord depart, leave the temple, leave Jerusalem, and go where? Well, according to Ezekiel, he says that it leaves, it departs to stop above the mountain east, which is what? The Mount of Olives. And by leaving the temple for the Mount of Olives, Matthew Henry even commented that in doing so, God was separating himself from the vileness of the people he would judge. You know, if we keep with this imagery of the Mount of Olives always representing separation and the Mount of Olives being the location of Golgotha, do you realize that from this mount, Jesus will experience the ultimate separation of all? When his father, whose presence departed from the sinful people on the Mount of Olives centuries before, forsakes his only son. Where the father separates from the son. For he who knew no sin would take upon himself the sin of the world. Let's get to our scene of activity. The procession headed to Golgotha. Pilate issues the formal declaration, may he mount the cross. Jesus is led out the sheep gate to go east towards the Mount of Olives. Mark 15 verse 20 tells us that they led Jesus out to crucify him. Now the next verse, Mark 15 verse 21, indicates that along the journey to Golgotha, Jesus collapses under the weight of the cross because of the scourging, because of everything that happened. He just physically can't go anymore. This 150-pound beam on his shoulders is more than he can carry. And thus the Romans choose out Simon the Cyrenian to carry the cross the rest of the journey. But Mark 15 verse 22 tells us something interesting tells us that the soldiers brought him to Golgotha. So check out the flow. Verse 20, they lead him out, indicating that they're leading, Jesus is following. He can't carry the cross. Verse 21, he falls down under the weight, the crushing weight. So Simon now carries the cross the rest of the way, and in our minds we think Jesus gets himself up and skips his way up to the cross. Not so, because they brought him, indicating that they're no longer leading him. Jesus is no longer following, but his physically, he's unable to carry the cross and he's also unable to carry himself. He can no longer walk and they drag him. They are dragging Jesus by the arms to the crucifixion site. In verse 23, we read, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. This concoction of wine and myrrh, it was during this time period a mind and pain-numbing drug. Before the crucifixion, the Jews had petitioned Rome to allow the Daughters of Jerusalem, this organization, to provide some kind of pain-numbing, mind-altering kind of drug to lessen the brutality of what was about to occur. But Jesus refuses it. He refuses it. And so we're told, and when they crucified him, feeling the full brunt 
of what would take place, they, speaking of the Roman soldiers, divided his garments. And they cast lots for them to determine what every man should take. And it was the third hour, which is 9 a.m., and we're told they crucified him. If you're reading this story for the first time, of which none of us are, but of which Mark's audience is, Mark, probably the first gospel writer, his letter circulating throughout Christianity, people hearing the story for the first time. Imagine, here you are. You're traveling through Mark. Every verse, every page, every sentence is new. It's fresh. You don't know the end. Imagine what kind of impact those three words, they crucified him would have had on you. I mean, you know it's coming. Jesus predicted it. The flow of the narration indicates that the end is near and his death inevitable. And yet, if I'm reading it for the first time, you still can't, like, there's still hope, right? Like, even till you get to this verse, you're still holding out that possibly there's going to be some kind of dynamic unforeseen, significant plot twist. Clearly, they can't go through with it. There's no way there has to be an out. It's kind of like holding out hope that Hank, Asak Schrader, finds a way to make it out of the desert alive before Uncle Jack abruptly pulls the trigger. That's a Breaking Bad reference. Spoiler alert. Sorry. What kind of disappointment would you experience to read those words? They crucified him. No, they couldn't have. Your hope is dashed, it's crushed. Now, at Golgotha, three of the five-man execution squad, they take the horizontal beam from Simon and they fasten it to the vertical beam that has been removed from its hole and laid on the ground. While these three men are busy prepping the cross. The other two Roman soldiers strip Jesus naked, leaving him only with a crown of thorns before they throw him down backwards onto the beam. We're also told that they remove the written accusation that he'd been wearing around his neck and they nail it to the top of the cross. Mark 15, verse 26. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Luke 23 tells us that the inscription itself was written in three languages. It was written in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, the languages of religion, commerce, and power. And moving in unison, as they thrust Jesus back onto the timber, two of the soldiers, they quickly press Jesus' shoulders against the wooden beam while two others, using rope that are tied to his wrist, stretch out both arms, fixing them into place. Jesus' natural resistance, his natural reflex to this motion, as as he recoils, they would pull harder. Most of the time, the arms, the shoulders, they would all pop out of joint. So as two men holding down his shoulders and two men extending out his arms, the fifth man proceeds to drive a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrists, deep into the wood. 
he immediately, upon completing the right, moves to the left. And while Jesus is physically attached to the cross now, unable to free himself, they take the beam, they hoist it into the air, and they drop the timber into a hole that has already been dug. Imagine the impact. The impact of the beam as it hits the ground, the bottom of the hole. It would send jolts of electrifying pain down Jesus' arms as now the full weight begins to grind together the nail and the bones within his wrist. Excruciating, horrifying. In addition to this, the dragging of the wood upon his lacerated back would cause his wounds to reopen. Momentarily, as the soldiers are making their way around, Jesus would find himself flailing around, trying to find a foothold to alleviate the pain he's feeling in his wrists. This erratic activity would only cause the friction of the nail and the bones to worsen. His movements along the cross itself would cause his back to develop a pain unimaginable. The Romans grab each leg and they take the left foot and they press it back against the right and with both feet extended out, they drive a solitary nail through the arch of each foot into the wooden beam. At this point, Jesus is officially crucified. However, what would occur over the next few hours as he hung on the cross would prove to be unimaginable. According to Roman records, the shortest crucifixion, this is Roman records, Jesus defies this because this would have been more Jewish, but the shortest crucifixion, the shortest amount of time on record of a man hanging on the cross was 32 hours. That's the shortest. The longest was 13 days. Now they would expedite this procedure because they would have to get Jesus and the others off the cross because the Sabbath would begin at 6 p.m. Roman statesman Cicero said, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen, to scourge him is an act of wickedness, to execute him almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable, it is impossible to find any word adequately to express. You realize that the experience on the cross did produce just that, that there was a limitation in human language to define the experience of the cross? that no one knew. No one knew, like, what word can you use? So they had to invent one. As a matter of fact, the English word excruciating is derived from the Roman word, which means out of the cross. You might experience pain you define as excruciating. My guess is not out of the cross. And because the act itself was so inhumane, Roman citizens were banned from being crucified. I mean, the act itself isn't effective. It takes days for a person to die as, as a form of execution. It's not quick. It's not inexpensive. The whole purpose was to be a PR stunt, an event to communicate you don't mess with Rome. Roman citizens being banned from crucifixion were instead beheaded. 
at this point, Jesus is only left to choose between one of two options, pain and more pain. The only way to avoid the burning torment of his wrists was by pushing himself up, placing the full weight of his body on this nail that had been driven between both feet, which as he pushes up, tears the nerves between the metatorsal bones. That's the only way he can alleviate the pain in his wrists is to create pain in his feet. And the only way to alleviate the pain in his feet is to endure pain in his wrists. But then came the inescapable cramping. As Jesus' arms and legs fatigue, coupled with the dehydration, the loss of blood from the scourging, at some point, waves of wrenching cramps sweep over his muscles, nodding them in a deep, relentless pain. A pain of which he can do nothing, that he can't alleviate, he must only endure. And most interesting is that with these cramps came a new dynamic to a crucifixion, the inability to push oneself up to inhale and then exhale. As the minutes of the crucifixion transition to hours, Jesus' fight, it moves from avoiding pain in his wrists and pains in his feet to just trying his best to get one short gulp of air. Most people would die on a cross from suffocation. Now, as Mark's narrative progresses, he's going to divide Jesus' six hours on the cross into two three-hour sections. The first section we'll look at today. It began at 9 a.m. when Jesus is crucified, and it continues to noon. The second section of Jesus' time on the cross will begin at noon with darkness and conclude when he cries out, it is finished, at 3 p.m. Now, during the first three-hour section, Mark includes the activities of four different groups of people around the cross. Interestingly enough, each group there located at the cross represents the reactions of most people who encounter a crucified Christ. We've actually already seen the first group. The first group was the pagan Roman soldiers who were oblivious to the truth. Mark says that they crucified him. So they crucify him. Then they divide up his garments. They cast lots to determine what every man should take. For the soldiers... The day started like every other day. This was their job. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't care. He was just a Jew, another revolutionary for all they estimated. They're just doing their job. They bring Jesus up. They lay him on the timber. They do what they do to everyone. They set him on the cross. They set the, the timbers into the hole. And then they do what they do. They divide up his possessions. And because Jesus didn't have much, they decide that, well, there's going to be no bonus for anyone. Let's at least have fun. So they cast lots. They play a game. They gamble at the cross. I mean, it really wasn't that they were rejecting Jesus. They're just oblivious to Jesus. They're oblivious to the spiritual event that's occurring. They're oblivious to the significance of this man. They're oblivious to the truth of what's occurring on the cross. They just don't know. Sadly, the pagan man or woman 
who sees Jesus on the cross and who would care to just go about life, who doesn't want to think of these things, who doesn't want to consider them, who would rather just go on with the day as it always has been, they would rather remain oblivious to the truth so that they could not change, so that Jesus would not affect them. There are people who see the cross and they just turn an eye because they don't want to think of the ramifications. Verse 27, with Jesus, Mark tells us that they also crucified two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and that we may believe. <laughs> and even those who were crucified with him, they reviled him. Now the second group that we see is the religious leaders. You see, the religious, they made a mockery of the truth. The pagans, oblivious. But the religious mocked it. Mark says that the chief priests also mocking among themselves their mockery. That the word used is, is the kind of petty dispute that children have with one another. They're making fun of Jesus. It's petty. You know, their statement that he saved others, himself he cannot save. It actually affirmed that Jesus had saved others. It's kind of the ironic aspect of this. But the rest of the statement misunderstood what was really taking place. For Think about it. Could Jesus save himself? Absolutely. But if he had saved himself, he would not have been able to do what they recommended he had been doing all along, and that is saving others. And then they say, and my blood boils when you read this. The hair on your neck stands up as you try to imagine it happening. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the king of Israel, descend that we may see and believe. You know, the Old Testament had made it very clear that seeing never produces believing. I mean, just think of the Exodus as an example. The generation that saw 10 plagues in Egypt, saw incredible supernatural acts of God, saw the Red Sea part, saw God provide manna, for food, supernaturally, on two occasions provide water as Moses strikes a rock whose clothes didn't wear out and tatter as they wander the wilderness. These men who see the presence of God descend on the top of the mountain, who sees any rebel who's trying to usurp Moses' authority, the ground open up, swallow them, and close back. They saw a lot, and yet there was no faith. This generation was faithless and would die in the wilderness, never entering the land of promise. You see, they should have known that seeing never produces believing. These men themselves had seen what? They had seen Jesus perform miraculous signs and wonders. They had seen for themselves the living Christ, and yet they still rejected him. They thought, descend from the cross that we may see and believe. It's interesting that Jesus would descend from a cross, wouldn't he? That three days later, he'd be resurrected. 
And yet these men seeing that would still refuse to believe because it's not an issue of my eyes. It's an issue of my heart. The religious leaders. The religious leaders of Israel are standing at a cross mocking Jesus. Think of the reaction we would have if the religious leaders of America went to an execution site as a rapist or a murderer is being given the needle and they stood there mocking. I mean, kind of the reaction we would have. This is what's taking place. An innocent man, they're mocking. You see, Jesus was a threat to their religion. He was a threat to their religious system by which they concluded they were moral. And so they stooped to the low point of mocking a man in the midst of his execution. Sadly, the religious man today who sees Jesus on the cross, the pagan man is oblivious, but the religious man would rather mock the truth of what Jesus was doing on that tree than accept the reality that his favor with God is is not produced by his own personal godliness. The third group is the masses that remained ignorant of the truth. Mark says that there were those who passed by. Mount of Olives, Golgotha. It's a point in which people are traveling to and from Jerusalem. It's Passover. It's celebration. People are making their way back and forth. And though these people are bystanders, they were not complicit in Jesus' trial or his arrest, his execution. But this is what they do. As they're making their way by, they see the religious leaders mocking Jesus, and they willingly join into the fray. They blasphemy him. It means to rail at, to wag their heads, and they're saying, you who destroy the temple, build it in three days and save yourself. Come down from the cross. Now, we have a misconception of the cross itself. We kind of imagine the cross as being this monstrous kind of thing that, that, that hoisted the prisoner high above the multitude. Well, that's why he was on a mountaintop, so that he would be hoisted high above the multitude. As a matter of fact, crosses, and we know this from recent archaeological discoveries, it, it seems to indicate that the cross didn't hoist a prisoner real high, but actually kept them at eye level, just a few feet off the ground. So that as you're making your way, you're connecting, you're identifying, you're seeing the man's agony. It's intense. It's brutal. As a matter of fact, History tells us that it wouldn't be abnormal that during the night when the guards weren't there to protect the men hanging on the cross, that they would die by being eaten by jackals. Because these people followed the religious leaders and didn't think for themselves, their accusations illustrated a deep ignorance of the truth. First, Jesus had never said that he would destroy the temple and build it in three days. He's speaking of his body. If they had listened to anything that he had said leading up to this day, they would have understood that Jesus would indeed save himself and he would be resurrected. Sadly, you have pagans oblivious. They just turn an eye, don't want to think about it at all. You have the religious who mock the truth, but you have those who pass by who don't think for themselves, who just take what others tell them, who blindly believe what they're told, and they never take a moment to examine the truth of what Jesus was doing there for themselves. But there was a final group. 
We're told that the transgressors reviled the truth. Mark says that Jesus was crucified with two robbers, one to his right and the other to his left. And even those who were crucified with him, Mark tells us they reviled him. What do we know about these two robbers? Initially, you might say very little, but you would be surprised. First, we know that they were co-revolutionaries with Barabbas. Mark 15, verse 7, we're told that Barabbas was chained with his fellow rebels before ultimately being released. We can estimate that his fellow rebels are these two men, which tells us also that they were publicly known as robbers. There were two robbers that were hung to Jesus' right and left. The Greek word robber, though, is misleading. Our thought process of a robber is that someone who would, like, steal property under the cover of night by stealth. But this is not the word at all. As a matter of fact, the word should better be translated brigand. Let me define brigand, a word we don't know much of. A brigand is an outlaw who conducts warfare by skirmishes and surprises, who makes the war support itself by plunder, by extorting blackmail, by capturing prisoners and holding them for ransom. These are men who enforce demands through violence. They kill prisoners who cannot pay. Brigand is the word that we ultimately derive bandit from. These were bandits. They were guerrilla-style revolutionaries. We're also told, though, Scripture defines them as transgressors. Okay, they were co-revolutionaries, they were robbers, but they're also transgressors. And this is what's interesting, and follow me here. Okay, Mark, writing in Greek, he quotes a Hebrew scripture. He quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12. Mark says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, then he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he was numbered with whom? The transgressors. Now in Hebrew, if you go into a word study of Isaiah 53, verse 12, you will find that the Hebrew word transgressors used there is a verb, pasha, literally meaning rebel. And yet Mark does something interesting. When he translates this Hebrew verse into the Greek for our benefit, he takes the word that was used as a verb, transgressors, and he makes it an adjective, enmos, which means a violator of the law. And this means that prophetically, Isaiah was spot on. Jesus would indeed be numbered with the revolutionaries. And yet Mark also sees in Isaiah's explanation of what these men had done, the verb, a description of who these men were, an adjective. Though they were guilty, with Barabbas of conspiring against Rome, revolting. More importantly, according to Scripture, they were guilty of revolting against the God who had created them. And we're told that they reviled Jesus. Reviled means to cast in one's teeth. It's, it's kind of a, a fancy way of our generalized uh, uh, phraseology, where we say, you know, to chew someone up and to spit them out. Like you chewed that guy up and you spit. That's the same word. It's, it's the word revile. That's what it means. To chew up, spit out. And you have to think for a moment, like what did Jesus do to them? I mean, okay, you understand the Romans being oblivious. You understand the religious leaders and their mockery. You understand the passerbys 
those folks, the masses, and, and them being ignorant of the truth. But the two other guys on the other crosses who've experienced the similar thing as Jesus, like why would they ridicule Jesus? I mean, could it have been that they were jealous of Barabbas? That Jesus had taken Barabbas' spot and not theirs, and they're kind of taking out their anger on Barabbas, getting away with it on Jesus? It could be. Were they upset that Jesus maybe hadn't been the Messiah that they had been hoping for, these being revolutionaries? Were they upset that Jesus was on the middle cross? The middle cross of recognition, thinking some revolutionary you are, what have you done to deserve the place of honor? See, I think that when it's all said and done, these two men do what all unrepentant men do in the presence of holiness. I hope you understand that there is only one of two reactions of the transgressor to the righteous presence of Jesus. There is only repentance or revilement. Sadly, there are people who see Jesus on the cross and they revile him because his presence shines for their light on their own depravity, on their own inadequacy, on their own sin. It's simply a truth that Jesus is righteousness. It highlights humanity's depravity. These two men, they revile Jesus because they're watching Jesus in his holiness on the cross. It made them, were, made, it made them look all the more worse. You know, for many, if the light never shined and we all lived in darkness, there would never have been a moral compass to convict any of us of sin. Now, at some point, while all this is occurring between 9 a.m. and noon, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23. We don't do this a lot in traveling through Mark. We try to stick with just the text in front of us. And yet, there's something interesting that occurs that Mark leaves out, but, but Luke describes for us. Luke 23, verse 39, we read, and if you don't want to turn that, I'll just read it for you, or it's in the app. We read that one of the criminals who were hanged blaspheming Jesus, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Sounds like he's regurgitating the same thing the religious leaders, the masses are saying. He joins into the blasphemy, but the other criminal answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turns to Jesus and he says, he asks, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What changed? Because according to Mark and Matthew, both of the criminals, both men were reviling him. It's plural. There's only two of them. So they both are. They both start the day making fun of Jesus, chewing him up and spitting him out. And yet at some point during these three hours, one of the two criminals, something changes in his mind, changes in his heart. Now, aside from the mocking of the crowd, we're told that during the first three hours, Jesus will make four statements from the cross. By the end, there will be a total of seven statements. Though the Romans have scourged, crucified, proven oblivious to what was really happening by gambling for his 
possessions. Though the religious leaders and the crowd, uh, the, the, the masses have mocked him and hurled blasphemies, his direction made these accusations that weren't true. And though this man and the other rebel hanging opposite uh, on the opposite cross have joined into the fray, though Jesus is there and no one's respectful at all and everyone's given it to him, the first words that this criminal, this one rebel hears come from the mouth of Jesus. I think it rocks his world. He's reviling Jesus. He's hurling accusations to Jesus. Everyone around the cross are saying all of these things, and yet he hears the first words, the only words that he hears comes from Jesus who had remained silent. Luke 23 verse 34 tells us that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Yeah, at this point, though he might have continued with his revilement, something is stirring in his heart. I'm convinced of it. Because he continues to watch Jesus. Jesus has not only verbally forgiven them, but he notes a genuine love that Jesus had for his accusers. He, he observes his patience, Jesus' tolerance, as the man watches, his mind races. And then as the other criminal, who was a friend, a cohort, begins to join the blasphemous accusations, the man's had enough, he interjects, he rebukes his friend. Do you not fear God? I can hear him saying it. Seeing you're under the same condemnation, and we justly, for we received our due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You know, this statement, it reveals the working of the Holy Spirit in his heart. He hears Jesus' word and he watches Jesus' love and there's a stirring of the spirit in his heart. The rebel has recognized three important things. Look at it. He's recognized that his, his sin, he's understood the gravity of his sin. And what? In comparison to Jesus' innocence. He's saying, we're getting what we deserve, but this man is innocent. Secondly, he recognizes that death, his soon death, will lead to an afterlife and a coming judgment. And thus he realizes that God should be feared, for he would soon find himself standing before God to be judged. And then he asks Jesus something. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In this statement, it now reveals a faith in Jesus' ability to save him. The first word, it says it all, really, that the man cries out, Lord. This is a man who wouldn't surrender his knee to anyone, a man who mocked Jesus for not fulfilling what he thought the Messiah should have been. It is the Greek word kiros, or literally Christ, the Hebrew translation of Messiah. Not only did he believe Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God, but the rest of his request shows a profound spiritual intuition. For as the cross, Jesus was more than a king, but the man identified him as a savior. He believed that upon death, Jesus could, if he wanted to, save him. That's why he says, remember me in your kingdom. And then comes Jesus' second phrase from the cross, his second statement. He said, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two rebels hung to Jesus' right and left. It's interesting. Scripture provides no distinction between either man. Both began the day in prison. 
Both were declared guilty of the same crime, both condemned to the same death. Both had experienced the same scourging, and both were hung on identical crosses. They both had revolted against Rome, and they both had mocked Jesus. Scripture had declared that both of these men were transgressors, and neither of them could do a thing to save himself, for they were both nailed to a cross. Two rebels hung the same distance from Jesus. Each had the same amount of revelation. Each within earshot of Jesus' words from the cross and each able to watch the way in which Jesus lovingly handled his accusers. Two rebels hung the same distance from a savior. Each the same distance from eternal separation or permanent forgiveness. Each the same distance from God's righteous wrath or his amazing grace. Each could experience restoration or everlasting condemnation. Two rebels were given the same opportunity. Both men would die on a cross, but they were each given the opportunity to find themselves in heaven instead of hell. Both would be unable to do a thing to earn God's favor. Each man was given the opportunity to instead ask that Jesus might save him and believe with the only activity a man could on a cross, and that is with the activity of the heart, the activity of faith. Two identical rebels hung the same distance from Jesus who had each been given the same opportunity to accept Christ or blaspheme him, would in the end find themselves in the same situation. For just a few hours later, the Romans would come by and would break their legs expediting the effects of the crucifixion. You were no longer able to push up to gain air. You would die quickly. Each man, hanging on their perspective crosses, would struggle to breathe his last before finally yielding to the fate of death. However, because of their differing positions concerning Jesus, because of what happened differently for each of them on the cross, they would awaken two rebels to two different destinies. One rebel who rejected Jesus would awaken to hell, while the other who placed his faith in Jesus would awaken to paradise. It's amazing. But two rebels and two crosses illustrate that salvation has nothing to do with what we do, but rather in what he did on a third cross of the work a savior did as he hung between the two in whom we ultimately can place our faith. It's because of this scene, friends, that we know that righteousness cannot be a matter of performance. For neither of these men could do a thing. Salvation is entirely a faith. Your salvation from sin and life eternally has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your effort, your energies, your work, your activity. It has nothing to do with your holy communion, your confirmation. It has nothing to do even with being baptized. As illustrated by two rebels, the only thing that matters in this life and the only thing that will save you is what happens between your heart and Jesus's. Which rebel are you? Which group are you? 
Are you remaining oblivious, not wanting to grapple with the ramifications? Are you full of pride in your own self-worth and own moralism, rejecting what Jesus did on the cross because it's a threat to your goodness, your ability, your righteousness? Are you one of the masses, not thinking for yourself, only regurgitating what you've heard, never looking at it in a real sense? Which rebel are you? The one who blasphemed? or the one who heard his word, who saw his love, and who ultimately responded by the stirring of the Holy Spirit to ask Jesus, will you save me? Because if you're that second rebel, Jesus says to you, friend, today you will will be with me in paradise. And so, Father, Father,